following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. When was the last time you were desperate, in over your head, overwhelmed, without hope? Maybe you're thinking, the last time? How about today, Pastor Matt? Uh, that's exactly how I feel. But whether you're, you're facing the chaos right now, or whether you're just kind of bracing for its impact at some point in the future, some nebulously uncertain, scary point in the future, you've come to the right place this morning because our passage is one that could make all the difference in your life. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark, if any of the four Gospels could be called a page-turner, it's this one. It's why this series is titled, Jesus Immediately. Jesus Immediately. That word shows up some 35 times throughout this brief gospel. We'll see it a couple times in our passage today. One interesting thing to note about Mark's gospel is that it's comparatively light on speeches and parables compared to the others, but it actually features more miracles. Even though it's the shortest of the four gospels, it features more miracles than Matthew, Luke, or John. And we're going to see one of those miracles this morning. We're just beginning the, the second half of Mark's gospel. Chapters 1 to 8, the first half, were primarily focused on who Jesus is, but now we're going to start to see what he has come 
to do. And here's what I think is the main idea of our story this morning. Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage and therefore this message. Bring your desperation to Jesus. Bring your desperation to Jesus because weak faith in him is better than strong faith in anything else. Bring your desperation to Jesus because even weak faith in him is better than strong faith in anything else. Our main idea is going to be drawn out as Jesus confronts different people, which will serve as our three points this morning. First, a boy with a demon. We'll see that in verses 14 to 20. Second, a dad with a petition. That's verses 21 to 27. And third, the disciples with a problem. That's verses 28 and 29. A boy with a demon a dad with a petition, and the disciples with a problem. First of all, a boy with a demon. After coming down the the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, abruptly encounter a very different scene. Look at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. It's worth noting that any time in Mark's gospel, when the disciples are separated from Jesus, do you know what happens? They fall into crisis. Uh, remember chapter 6 when they're, when they're rowing against the wind? Uh, Mark says they're straining at the oars across the Lake of Galilee, making no progress until Jesus comes marching over the waves to help them. Well, here he is again, verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So the crowd instantly loses interest in the spectacle in front of them. They instantly lose interest in the argument that's playing out between the teachers of the law and the disciples because now someone else is here and they're captivated with him. So they run to him. They they receive him with great fanfare. And then they hear his question. Verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? He asked. Verse 17, "A, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought, my, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. This is a scene of utter helplessness, a, a desperate man describing his desperate child. Th- this boy isn't just deaf and mute. He's oppressed. Evil forces are causing these violent seizures. So this isn't merely a difficult medical condition. This is an invasion. The boy is under assault and even the mighty disciples can't do a thing. Do you see how far down we've come I mean, last week was probably the brightest, most dazzling passage I've ever preached. Uh, not, not sermon I've ever preached. That would be arrogant. Passage I've ever preached. 
I don't think I've ever tried to describe a more glorious and dazzling scene than we saw. And yet now we're staring. I mean, we, last week we were squinting into the brightness. Now we are staring into the abyss of chaos and destruction and evil. The contrast between last week's story and this week, the contrast is disturbing and deliberate. If you visit the Vatican Gallery in Rome, you can find the last painting Raphael ever did. It's simply titled The Transfiguration. And there are three levels to the painting. At the top, you have the glowing figure of Jesus, the transfigured glory of Jesus with Moses and Elijah beside him. And underneath that, you have the disciples, specifically Peter, James, and John, who are shielding their eyes from that brilliance. And then on the ground level, you have this poor, tormented boy with his father beside him. And here's what Raphael did with the scene. If you look carefully at the painting, you'll see a couple disciples at the bottom level, the ground floor, looking into the chaos, staring at the desperate boy and the distressed father but pointing up to the glory, the blinding glory of the only one who can help them. See, do you see what Raphael is doing? He's capturing artistically the overwhelming contrast between the sparkling glory of the transfiguration and the troubled world waiting below. Brothers and sisters, we don't have a savior who just stays up on the mountain, enveloped in glory. No, we have one who descends, who comes down to where we are. Because let's be honest, our days in a fallen world are lived at that bottom level, lived in the valley, in the darkness, in the desperation, in the chaos. And it's there where you are, whether you realize it or not this morning, it's there where you are and therefore where, where you need Jesus to show up, that he does. Maybe you feel desperate this morning. It may not be demonic harassment, but it's something, something out of your control, something that has you at your wits, wits end, just feeling utterly bankrupt and hopeless. But beloved, Jesus Christ does not recoil from desperate people in desperate situations. He draws near. Desperate people in desperate situations are like a magnet to the Son of God. You're not going to face anything this week that is too bleak, too desperate, too far gone for him to show up and transform. Don't run from him. Don't run from him. Come to him. Bring him your weakness your brutal honesty, your questions, your doubts, your desperation. Just make sure that you come with a little bit of trust. Verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Look carefully. Jesus' irritation is not with the boy. It's not with the dad. 
It's with the unbelief that is spread like leaven among the crowd and has even taken root in the disciples' hearts. We saw this back in chapter 6. Remember when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth? And it says he was amazed at their lack of faith. Amazed at their lack of faith. He was dumbfounded. He couldn't comprehend it. I mean, you want to amaze Jesus Christ for the wrong reason? Keep refusing to trust him. But I love that he ends by saying, not, so get away from me. No, he ends by saying, bring the boy to me, even in the face of great doubt and disbelief. Jesus is still willing to act. Verse 20, so they brought him. When the spirit, that is the evil spirit in the boy, when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Again, this is more than just an epileptic seizure. This is a demonic eruption, and more specifically, a demonic reaction. (laughs) A reaction. Because the demon here is is, is responding to the Son of God in his midst. The kingdom of God has crashed in and is bringing about this great violent conflict. And notice this. The mere sight of Jesus is enough to send this evil spirit into a a fit of terror and rage. See, demons hate God, which means they hate anything that reminds them of God. And guess what reminds them of God? People made in his image. The intensity of their quest, the very intensity of this activity, this effort to deface the image of God, to degrade the image of God, reveals just how valuable a human life is. Again, what we're seeing here is the kingdom of God violently clashing with the kingdom of darkness. The light of the world shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome it, but it won't be for lack of effort. Mark's purpose here is not to just provoke fascination with the demonic, preoccupation with the demonic. No, he assumes the presence and power of demonic forces, but his focus is not finally on the demons. It's not finally on the chaos. It's not finally on the bottom level of the painting. It's on the only one who can calm it. So in the face of ravaging disease and demonic mayhem, Jesus now looks and locks eyes with the boy's father. Point two, a dad with a petition. A dad with a petition. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It is often thrown him into, a, into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And can't you just hear the pain in this father's heart? He's out of resources. He's out of ideas. I mean, just imagine that the cruelty of this situation. The boy being deaf 
would have been unable to hear the comforting sound of his father's voice. And the boy being mute would have been unable to fully convey the despair that he surely felt. This would have created a painful chasm in their relationship, which I think may be one reason the dad doesn't say, have compassion on my son and help him. Did you notice that? He says, have compassion on us. (laughs) Help us. In other words, this is ravaging our whole family. We're all in this together and it's ruining things. It's ravaging the peace of our home. Help us. Please give us some relief if you can. Verse 23. If you can, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. This dad is not doubting Christ's willingness. He's just doubting his ability. It's like, I know, Jesus, I know you would if you could, but can you? Interestingly, this is the reverse of what the leper said in chapter 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Chapter 1, I trust you're able, but are you willing? Chapter 9, I, I trust you're willing, but are you able What about your heart? Are you more inclined, more tempted to doubt his willingness or his ability? I'm so grateful that my college campus minister, Dan Flynn, loved to emphasize these two truths from Scripture. God can and God cares. God can and God cares. I didn't realize it at the time, but in those simple words, he was distinguishing biblical Christianity from every other religion on the market. Protestant liberalism, for example, offers a God who is good, but not great. Uh, A God who cares, but really can't. In other words, he's he's a nice buddy, he's an experienced life coach, he's a world class psychotherapist. But at the end of the day, he's just the man upstairs. Meanwhile, religions such as Islam offer the opposite. A God who is seemingly great, but not really good. A God who can, but perhaps who doesn't care. When we open our Bibles, though, something startling happens we encounter a living Lord who is both great and good, sovereign and kind, who can and who cares. See, if God were only good, I would go to bed frightened. If God were only good, I would go to bed absolutely terrified because how could I trust the power of one who, bless his heart, means well and is doing his best? But I would also go to bed frightened if he were only sovereign. What assurance is there in knowing he's he's mighty if he's not merciful? 
What comfort is there in a deity who's glorious and majestic but doesn't care enough to plunge himself into our pain to rescue us? What hope is there, in other words, in a God without scars? I'll just speak for myself and say, I'm most inclined to believe he's able, but to doubt that he's actually willing. To to know he can, but to just wonder deep down if he really cares. Not for the figures in the Bible, but for me. (laughs) If he's truly weaving and working all things together for good, for my good, even the tragedies, even the difficulties, even the, the, the uncertainties. And if by chance you're like me, if, if, you're, if you're ever prone to doubt that he is delighting right now, present tense, that the God of the universe is delighting if you're in Christ to do you good, then you need this reminder too. And this should sober us. I think especially people in a church like ours because we talk a lot about the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. But if you're like me and you struggle to doubt his compassion and his willingness, here's the reality. Let's just be honest. If you and I have a high and soaring view of his sovereignty and his glory, but we don't also have a high and soaring view of his kindness and compassion, then we don't yet have a high view of God. His actions toward his people are always compassionate. I did not say they always appear so obviously on the surface from our fallen and finite perspective. But even when we struggle to see his actions as compassionate, they are because he is. Everything is possible for one who believes, he says. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. All right, we have reached one of the most beautiful declarations of faith in all the Bible. And guess what? It's also one of the weakest. (laughs) That should encourage you. Jesus Christ is moved to action, not based on how strong your faith is, but where it's placed. See, we read this statement, everything is possible for one who believes. And we hear this triumphant musical score in the background. And we think what Jesus is saying is, everything is possible for the one who believes a lot. And yes, strong faith is good. Yes, strong faith glorifies God. But in the context of this passage, what Jesus is saying is everything is even possible for the one who believes a little. Verse 24, the the dad says, "I, I do believe Jesus, but help me overcome my unbelief. There's still a lot of that mixed in. Verse 25, sir, I'm sorry. Come back when you've increased your faith. No, 
Verse 25 is, sir, that's all I needed to hear. Let's get this demon out of your boy. I mean, do you see how the compassion of Jesus accommodates to our weakness and meets us where we're at, exactly where we're at? Did you notice in verse 17 how this dad initially viewed Jesus? Look back at verse 17. How did this father address Jesus in verse 17? What does he call him? Teacher. That's where he starts. Teacher. Jesus doesn't take offense. He doesn't scold him. He works with him. He brings him along to the point now where he's no longer just saying, teacher, here's a question for you. He's on his face crying out in faith because he now realizes, he now hopes that he's talking to someone who is far more than a teacher. The moment Jesus spots faith, he moves into action. I want you guys to see this. I want you guys to internalize this. See, we are slow to treat people better than we deserve. Beware of thinking of God as just a cosmic projection of yourself. We're slow to treat people better than they deserve, but with Jesus, his mercy is on a hair trigger even when he's hanging on the cross. I mean, think about it. The repenting thief on the cross had no opportunity to grow and mature spiritually. But what Jesus spotted there next to him was, was, was mustard seed faith. Little faith, unimpressive faith, small mustard seed faith, and yet it was enough. Today, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. And likewise, Jesus spots that little, little flicker of faith in this dad. But it wasn't just this automatic thing. The dad had to humble himself. He kind of had to undignify himself in, in public. He had, to, he had to come to the end of himself and cry out desperately for help. And some of you have been too prideful to do that. You've batted around ideas about God and you've come to church and you've believed certain facts about the Bible or about the gospel, but you have never humbled yourself and come before Jesus Christ in desperate, empty-handed faith. You've never come to him with your chaos, with your sin, and just cried, Lord, help me, rescue me. But again, that's the key that unlocks it all. That's the key. It's not the amount of faith you bring. It's who you bring it to. See, ironically, don't miss this. The father's admission of unbelief here, the father's admission of unbelief was in reality an expression of trust because it was a prayer. He's talking to God incarnate. He was voicing faith that Jesus could help him even with his lack of faith. And friend, just because you're wheeling around this luggage cart of questions and doubts and desperation or shame doesn't mean you can't come to Jesus. It means you must humble yourself before him today. Turn away from your self-reliance. Put your trust 
in his death, in the, in, on the cross, in your place for your sins and his triumphant resurrection three days later. And from that moment on, if you do that, if you turn from your sin and put your trust in this Jesus, I have some really good, for, good news for you. From that day on, your security will not ever be finally anchored. Your security will not be anchored in the strength of your faith, but in the strength of your Savior. Even weak faith in Him is infinitely better than strong faith in anything else. As King David prayed in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, a broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. Friend, never think your doubts scare Jesus away. You want to talk about demonic activity today in 21st century sophisticated America? It's believing stuff like that because that's a lie from the pit of hell. Never think your doubts will scare Jesus away. They don't disturb him. What disturbs him is when you don't bring your doubts to him. The reason in Mark 9 that Jesus wants to see faith in this dad before he heals his son is the same reason he wants to see faith in us. It's not because he needs it. It's because we do. He waits for faith. Why? So there will be no mistaking who gets the glory. Well, verse 25 is the showdown. When when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Again, notice who Jesus is not rebuking. He is not rebuking the weak, wobbly faith of the dad. He's just rebuking the demon. Then he flings open the door, banishes the evil spirit, and then shuts it and bolts it from the inside. It reminds me of what he says in Revelation 3, 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. This demon ain't getting back in. Notice Jesus only had to say the word. He didn't have to do some elaborate incantation or spell. He just said the word, I command you. And it was all it took, which is why I prayed earlier in the service what I did in the pastoral prayer. That I, that I pray that, that this, one of the core priorities that would mark our church would be biblical preaching. That is the kind of preaching that seeks not to entertain, but to simply hold up a microphone to the mouth of God and let him speak. Which means let him hold sway. Let him dictate the agenda for our church because I'm not qualified to do that. If I'm dictating the agenda for this church, then you need to find a different one. I can't create spiritual life or sustain it Only God through his word can do that. And that's why we center everything in our services around this book and not any one man. Verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. So the word is powerful and it's effective. The boy Middle verse 26, the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, 
he's dead. Kids, look at this Bible story. Jesus intervenes and things only get worse. I mean, the boy was mute and deaf. Now he's dead. (laughs) At least it looks that way. But we should always be slow to judge the behavior of God prematurely. Verse 27, but Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. The word for stood up there is the Greek word for resurrection. Remember last week's story, verse 10? What were Peter, James, and John discussing on their way down from the mountain? They were wondering how in the world could one man be raised in the middle of history? Well, no sooner do they reach the bottom of the mountain than they get this striking object lesson. And the lesson, if they have eyes to see it, is a miniature preview of the future. Except their master, unlike this boy, their master won't just appear dead. He will actually be a corpse until God the Father's voice says, rise. See, this little story in Mark 9 is a mini parable of death and resurrection because that's exactly where Jesus is heading. A boy with a demon, a dad with a petition, and finally, the disciples with a problem. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Now, remember, they're asking this. This is a genuine question. Because remember, they've already been driving out demons. Chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Chapter 6, verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And a few verses later, they drove out many demons. So why not this one? They're asking, why is it not working this time. Verse 29, he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. It's hard to know exactly what's going on here, but it seems like the disciples have finally reached a point in their ministry where they've started to think, we've done this before. We got this. Brothers and sisters, every one of us especially those of us in vocational ministry, are in constant danger of reaching that same place, in constant danger of professionalizing all of this, just becoming professionals at this stuff and putting the work, the ministry on autopilot. That's what I was praying right before the service, that God would help me not be a hypocrite and put things on autopilot. And, and lean into gifting or lean into experience or lean into just my, my notes, but that I would lean as I'm preaching, lean all of my weight on God such that if he moves, I'm face planning. And perhaps the best litmus test of whether you're doing this, whether you're kind of just operating out of spiritual reserves, going through the motions, putting things on autopilot, that Maybe the best litmus test 
is what you're praying about. In the very first informational presentation I ever gave about an idea called River City Baptist Church, I quoted the pastor H.B. Charles when he says, quote, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. And that is why from day one, we have emphasized not just personal prayer, which is great, but also corporate prayer. Because as we gather regularly to pray on Sunday mornings and especially every other Sunday evening, we get more and more reasons together to thank God, to see him at work in our midst, to express care for each other, to cry out for his help, and like the dad in Mark 9, to hear him answer. This past week, I emailed our our members an article on reasons to attend your church's prayer meeting, such as the one we have tonight at 5 p.m. and have every other Sunday evening. And I included in the email a short but bracing quote from Charles Spurgeon, which is too good not to share again, as we think about congregationally how to apply Mark 9 together. Quote, The condition of a church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. Not, how many are you running on Sunday morning? The condition of a church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. The prayer meeting is the grace-ometer, and from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he not be there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. Oh, beloved, let's never put our ministry on autopilot. Let's never become so prideful that we think we no longer need to pray. Let's keep bringing our weakness to Christ, our desperation to him, our needs to him. Why? Because he is merciful and mighty. He can and he cares. And in conclusion, do you now see why last week's passage and this one are stitched together. Do do you see Raphael captured something of the great contrast between the dazzling transformation, uh, the dazzling transfiguration on the mountain and the agonizing desperation at the bottom. And it's because everything is for a purpose. Think about this. It's precisely because life is lived at the bottom in the darkness that Jesus loved Peter, James, and John enough to give them a little glimpse of glory at the top so that they would not forget in the darkness what they had learned in the light. But the other major parallel between the two stories is that both feature a father and a son. One father is on the mountain full of joy and delight. The other is in the valley full of pain and despair. One is a son of light 
The other is a son of darkness. One is controlled by God. The other is thrashed by demons. But in the valley, at the bottom of the painting, the two sons meet. And in the valley, the son of God will meet you too. See, see, Jesus has descended the Mount of Transfiguration, but before long, he'll be ascending another mountain. Golgotha, the the place of the skull. And when he ascends that mountain, unlike Mark 9, he won't have his three closest friends with him. He will be walking alone with a wooden cross. And it will be on that cross, hanging there in the place of sinners like you and me, that he will be enthroned as a royal son, the son whom the father loves, the son to whom we must listen, and the son to whom we must bring our desperation and doubts. Because friends, even weak faith in him is better than strong faith in anything else. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we confess that we are slow to believe Because so often we think that if we come to you, we will only find rejection. We will will only find someone who doesn't care. Lord, we confess that those are lies from hell and that we want to live out, Lord, the, the, the glory of heaven as we think about what it means to trust you to bring to you our weak and wavering faith, to know that it is not finally based on the impressiveness of our faith, but on the indestructibility of our Savior, that we are saved and secure. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.